Today on CityCast Boise, we may call ourselves the city of trees, but let's face it, we live in a desert. Isn't it time to start landscaping like it? Today, producer Jennifer Jarrett is talking with Annie Jack, the adult education coordinator at the Idaho Botanical Garden, about why we should be thinking about low water landscapes. And I gotta tell you, Annie says something about Boise's identity that I cannot get out of my head. It's Thursday, September 15th, 2022. I'm Frankie Barnhill, and this is CityCast Boise. Annie, thank you so much for joining us on CityCast Boise today. I wanted to start this conversation with a grass rant. Oh, (laughs) yes. (laughs) It has been so hot. I'm walking around my neighborhood and I'm just seeing lots and lots of yards, including mine, where the grass absolutely (laughs) looks terrible. And at the same time, everybody is just trying so hard to keep it alive with watering. And I just feel like it's not making much difference. And yeah, so I'm on a grass rant. Yeah, that whole green lawn and who has the biggest, best and greenest. It comes from, well, it's evident in George Washington days. That was when everybody started having these big, beautiful manicured lawns and it was a sign of wealth. So now getting away from that and with climate change and how hot we are and our water restrictions that are going to come at some point, it's a really good idea to start rethinking that huge expanse of turf. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. I am one of those people who is in the process of trying to change out from turf to something that is more water thrifty to something that, you know, provides some benefit to pollinators and local species. And so this is why I wanted to have you on and talk about xeriscaping. Tell me a little bit about your journey and how you got into this. I'm from the Pacific Northwest and the plants are totally different. The soil's acidic. After college, I moved here with my husband and I saw the brown hills as we came down I-84 into the valley. And I saw those brown hills and I thought, oh, dear Lord, what have I gotten into? And how am I going to grow all the plants that I I know? (laughs) And the answer was, I won't. And I knew that I didn't want to fight an uphill battle. So I chose plants that would be great and adaptable for our area. And so when you made that transition, yeah, what can you tell me about it? Like, give me a sense of the pre and then the post. How, how did it turn out? <laughs> so our house was edge to edge grass and Kentucky bluegrass, of course, which is not a drought tolerant variety. And when I first started, the neighbors were terrified. Everybody thought that I was doing something absolutely crazy. I was the first person in my whole neighborhood to do something like this, to take out that huge expanse of turf. And I had many worried older people that lived in the neighborhood coming up to me as I worked. And I said, I promise I have a plan. It's just going to take a little bit of time. So let's talk a little bit then about like just the benefits and, and some of the benefits that you noticed from your process. So it brought in a lot of pollinators. I am not a 
perfect, tidy gardener. And I, I really don't believe anybody should be. When you clean up every leaf and you clean up every stick on the ground, you're taking away habitat for pollinators. So I wasn't a, a tidy gardener in that respect, but the garden was beautiful. And I saw a variety of pollinators. I had animals, wildlife bedding down in my um, suburban garden. I had foxes that were ready to give birth. And uh, oh my gosh. Yeah, I just, it was very cool. So when you create that native habitat, animals are coming into your space and you get to observe. And I think that's the coolest part of having a, a habitat garden, especially one that's specific to our area, because you get to watch it from afar in your window. And yeah, when we had a mass migration of butterflies, it came right over our property and they landed in huge numbers all over oh my, my native flowers. And I just sat out there and just watched them with my kids toddling around. It was beautiful. So that's amazing. You know, I mean, that's it's crazy. It makes me think of some of these misconceptions, right? Because when you think of xeriscaping, <laughs> I think a lot of people, you and I have joked about this. It's xeric. It's based on the word xeric, xeriscaping, yes. not what? Zero. <laughs> Right, not zero escaping. And so I think sometimes folks think about it like zero escaping, yes. meaning it's just going to be like pebbles yeah. and a couple of cacti. Yes. Um, but it sounds like you were able to do something that was really rich yeah. and and really full of flowers. Yeah. So like I said, when I came off that hill, when I was moving here 22 years ago, and I saw how brown those hills were, and of course, we're talking summer, um, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, there has to be a way to make it beautiful and have plants grow here. So my goal, once I learned about all these crazy cool plants that weren't common to our area quite yet, um, and I started planting them, I decided that my garden would be a demonstration garden so I could show the public you could have a low water cottage looking garden. So my garden, um, I had people <laughs> stop and do family photos in front of my house, things like that, <laughs> because awesome. it, it was beautiful. And no one would guess that I didn't water. I mean, th one of the things that makes me think of too, I've got now this is California, so it's a little bit different, <laughs> but they're under these crazy, crazy water restrictions. I've got yes. friends out there that recently moved in and did this whole transition for their yard as well. And that's part of what kind of inspired me. And so, yeah, my friend Eric said that they they cut their water usage in half in one year. So they ripped out all the grass, 5,000 square feet of grass, cut their water usage in half, and they have 350 uh, native and xeric plants, 65 species, and 14 fruit trees. And they cut their water usage in half just by transitioning away from lawn. I was blown away. Does that sort of track with your experience or what you know about this kind of thing? Yeah, you just have to water correctly. That is the main thing. So you want to water deeply. The roots are looking for where there's water. And if you're watering lots of times and shallow watering, that's only 10, 15 minutes, it's only watering the first couple inches of soil. Why would the roots want to go anywhere else? So if you water deeply, you get the water down low, it's going to make those roots travel deeply. And then Water is going to be more accessible in those spaces, even when there's not rain, because it stays down there where it's cool, where it's moist. So um, that's a big difference. It's how you water. It's not how much. 
Annie, tell me a little bit about some of the plants that would classify as xeric or some of the plants that folks interested in xeriscaping would think about planting. I seem to love plants that attract hummingbirds. I love the bright tubular flowers. So Zoshinaria, which is hummingbird trumpet, is either a taller one you can get or a ground lower variety. And it is just chock full of orange, almost coral tubular flowers that are just covered with um, different hummingbirds and pollinators. It's a great one. So I that was in my no water zone. I gave it no extra water. And it's, it loves neglect. So if you're someone that's going to forget your yard, that's a great one. Um, I love Mormon tea. And if you've ever been to the botanical garden, um, right around the yucca corner across from the greenhouses, there is a massive one that is the best specimen. It's been there for eons. It's a minty blue. It's evergreen just a cool rolling shape that covers a large area of your garden. And those are zero water. The Mirabilis plant, um, that one has a huge taproot. Um, but what was the coolest part about that? It is covered in magenta flowers that are open at dusk and it is covered in hummingbird moths. They just come to it and they just cover it. And we saw that when I was on a, a garden tour over the botanical garden, I was saying bees are covered in hummingbird moths and they just flew right in when I was talking. So it was perfect. Oh, that is so <laughs> awesome. Okay, right. That's like that, that desert four o'clock, I think is one, one of the common names that it goes by. Yes, wild four o'clock. Okay, gotcha. Multiflora is the one that you can buy uh, through High Country Gardens, uh, Diana Dragon Wings. She does our native kind of lower water plants here. Yeah, okay. I was going to ask you, I know about High Country Gardens. That place has been around forever and you can yeah. go online and look at a catalog and order plants. There's something about like putting plants on a plane and <laughs> expending the carbon to get the plants here that I'm yes. kind of like, eh. But I, I, do try, I do find that it, th it seems harder to find some of these plants that we're talking about. And so, Very. yeah, where, where in town can folks go to get some xeric plants? My go-to local person is Diane Dragonwing, and for multiple reasons, but she grows them in the tall pots, which means the root is more developed. So it's ready to be planted. You know they're going to do okay. Also, you can see those plants growing in her demonstration garden. So if you are wondering what the heck that thing is going to look like in, you know, a few months, next year, two years, you can just walk around and you'll see it. It's great to see that in person. The other things I'd recommend, native plant sales. I know uh, the Botanical Garden puts on a plant sale. CWI puts on a plant sale. So all of those local plant sales, they a lot of times specialize in our local plants and a lot of lower water plants. Do you know if there are any homeowner incentive programs to transition from something that's more high water use to something that's low water use? As far as I know, Boise doesn't have that. And what I have heard from a lot of communities is actually we dissuade by having homeowners association rules that prohibit you from oh, doing that. Really? Yeah. Where you can't take out the grass. You can't change the trees to these different kinds of plants. More often than that, I'm hearing about. Really? Yeah. So. Yeah, especially. Plant communities. We need to ha start having some conversations, maybe. Yes, yes. <laughs> I get it out there as far as I can, but I'm met with resistance when I'm talking to someone that lives in one of those communities because they try and put it forward to, to the board, to the Homeowners Association, and a lot of times it's uh, heck no. 
See, now that's just crazy to me. I feel like it's time for us to reimagine what beautiful yards look like. I mean, mm-hmm. I get it. it. It feels like it's ingrained, but I just don't know that the future is going to unfold in a way that we can kind of stick to the program. So I think there's that mentality of if and when it comes, I'll handle it then. But I think we'd be so much happier if we started transitioning now so we knew there is a comfort in knowing in worst case scenarios that you're going to have that spot where you can grow beautiful things and people can come to and gather around even if we have the worst days, droughts, fires, whatnot, that we can still have that space. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the whole point of gardening is really to sort of create the sense of serenity and to have resilient landscapes and, you know, take take our cues from nature, have a little curated bit of nature. And yeah, I think sometimes just uh, kind of the standard high water use garden that, that we see in these areas, just perhaps not not super reflective of any of those ideas because they take a lot of work, they take a lot of resources, they may not really be providing any benefits to, you know, creatures that live here. And yeah, anyway, just food for thought. I always think about what is our uh, landscape identity. I I've thought about that when it comes to, um, you see pictures of New Mexico and Albuquerque, Santa Fe, you know where it's at, not only because of the style of the home, but also the landscape. There's an identity through that landscape that it's automatically triggered. I know exactly where this is. I feel like we don't have that yet. I feel like Boise's identity um, through that landscape, through the garden, isn't evident. And I, I hope someday that um, we start taking that nature in, like you were just talking about, um, you bring a little bit of that nature into your garden that's into your space. And I hope that we do that. Like we bring in those plants, those flowers, the um, shrubs and the trees that are in those natural spaces that bring our natural wildlife and habitat that we can bring it into our community, into our homes, our spaces. I am so with you. Thank you so much for coming on CityCast Boise, Annie. Yeah, you're welcome. It was fun. Want more resources and inspo for Xeriscaping? We've got you covered in our show notes. And one more thing before you head out. We're another step closer to getting our first In-N-Out Burger location planned for the old Pier 1 building by the mall. Still no official countdown clock for opening, but with a permit in hand, it looks like I might get a chance to order my first double-double within Boise city limits someday in the future. But what do you think? Is the hype worth it? Is there a local burger that deserves more attention? Hit us up. You can text us or you can leave us a voicemail, 208-546-9485. We might share your thoughts on a future show. CityCast Boise is produced by Evelyn Avitia and Jennifer Jarrett. Blake Hunter writes our daily newsletter, and I'm Frankie Barnhill, host and lead producer of the show. Our music is by local band Up Is The Down Is The. We'll be back Tuesday with more stories and conversations about our city. See you then.